Sometimes as we open our Bibles and we read such powerful illustrations as the one that is found in Ezekiel 16, we realize how much God really cares about our being able to survive. For just a moment, I'd like to remind you of what was going on when Ezekiel the prophet wrote this message. He was with the captives in Babylon. His counterpart, Jeremiah, was in the city of Jerusalem. Things were going very badly since Zedekiah had been made the king over Judah. When you read Jeremiah chapter 5 and you read verse or chapter 6 and verse 15, he asked the question, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. He was saying that the children of Israel had gotten to such a point that no longer did sin bother them at all. In fact, what had happened to them, they had lost the struggle to survive as God's people. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 6, or excuse me, Ezekiel chapter 16, there's a picture given there, and I don't have time to read all of Ezekiel 16. My initial plan for this lesson was to study this chapter, but then I thought there's so much more that we need to deal with. So for just a few minutes, keep your Bible open there to Ezekiel 16. And let me take a little bit of time to summarize the picture that's going on. As the opening of the chapter occurs, he says, I want you to show Jerusalem her abominations. I want you to give her a picture of who she is and her condition. And so what God does, he says, your nativity, your birth. He said it was like a child that was born, was thrown out in the field to die. You know, we wouldn't think of doing that in our country today. But you go back to ancient times and you would find that many times if a mother or a father or both did not want a child, they would just take that child and throw it out and expose it and the child would die of exposure, lack of food, lack of water. And that is the picture of Jerusalem. Unwanted an abandoned child as an infant, striving to survive. And when you get to verse 6, God saw the child, the baby, the infant, striving to live in its own blood, and God said, survive, live. The picture goes on to show this baby, if you will, this little girl, unwanted, was provided for and cared for by God. This little girl grew up and God provided the clothes that she needed, all of the adornments, and then finally God used the picture to say, I want you to be mine. And God made a covenant, just like the covenant of marriage, to marry this young girl, Jerusalem. And God provided every need that was given. In fact, much more than just the needs, the silver, the gold, the fine clothing. And yet when this young girl grows up and God has provided every need, 
Through the godless influences, she turns on God and becomes a prostitute. And you know, as you read that, you, you, you see the despair in God's voice. And you see God's concern. But the truth is, throughout all of this struggle, God still loved this struggling baby that had become a woman. God still wanted this baby to survive. And the truth is, God still wants us to survive. This is how Jerusalem struggled with spiritual failure. But you know, as you and I read that, we could say, well, that was Judah then. Those were those people. But do you realize that those of us living today also struggle for spiritual survival? Let me ask you a few questions by means of introduction. Do you feel that you are struggling to be a faithful Christian? Do you think that you are walking faithfully with the Lord? What kinds of things make you feel that it's difficult to be a faithful Christian? In your own life, can you make a list of things that are difficult for you as you struggle with faithfulness? Now, here's the problem. Unfortunately, there are many people, when they are presented with troubles and difficulties in their life, give up and do not succeed. In Luke chapter 8, verses 13 and 14, but the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, who believe for a while, and in a time of temptation, fall away. Or in verse 14, Now the ones that fell among the thorn are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with the cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. You see, there are some people who, whether it is not having enough depth or they have too many other things going on in their lives, simply give up on the Lord and give in to the temptations. Well, this lesson is going to be to encourage us not to give up. You know, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 36, he says, For you have need of endurance that having done the will of God you may receive the promise. We need to be the kind of people who that when we find ourselves tempted and we succumb are able to look back and say, I know God still loves me. God still wants me to survive. God still wants me to be faithful to Him. And I'm going to make things right. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at four things which, in my opinion, are very apt to cause us to fall. The first is personal failures. The second one is persistent temptations. The third is phony Christians. And number four is prosperity. Let's begin, first of all, by talking about personal failures I look back at the illustration of Ezekiel chapter 16 and here is this young girl growing up into a young woman 
And as she grows up, it's just like every young woman today, and she looks forward to the coming of the future about when maybe, for instance, she's going to be married, maybe when she's going to have children, and as things are going to be brighter and brighter in life. When you became a child of God, what kind of outlook did you have? I'd suggest it's probably very similar to that of the Ethiopian eunuch. Luke records, Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he, that is the eunuch, went on his way rejoicing. When you start thinking about that, many of us look back and we had some very ambitious goals. Do you remember when you first became a Christian, you thought, I am going to live the Christian life, I am going to be faithful to God, and I am going to never miss a service, I'm going to study my Bible daily. Do you remember the attitudes that you had, how positive they were? You had this unbridled enthusiasm that would say, I'm going to accomplish great things. But then personal failures set in. That is, those of us who become acquainted with real life. And when we had started out with such enthusiasm and started out with such ambitious goals, now find ourselves failing. We're not living up to our expectations, much less God's. We thought we were never going to sin, and then we found out that sin came in our lives. We realized that we failed. Do you want to know how many of us went through that? All of us. We want to avoid sin. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, My little children, these things I write unto you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Here's what you face. You face sin. You don't want to sin, but here it comes. When the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us. You mean there's a sin which so easily ensnares us? Yes, there is. There is for each one of us that sin out there that grabs a hold of us. And see, here's a problem. As we begin our desire to serve God, we don't realize all of the things that are out there that are going to be in our pathway. Just an illustration. In the book of 1 Corinthians alone, Paul says ten times, Do you not know? Don't you know this? Don't you know that? And it seems as if you and I start out with all this enthusiasm and then we become aware of this problem and this difficulty and life is not as easy as we thought it was going to be. Listen to Paul as he expresses it in Romans chapter 7. For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate... That I do, dropping down to verse 18. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will do, I do not. But the evil that I will not do, 
that I practice. Do you think that describes most of us when we look at our personal failures? Now, there ought to be some help in the Bible that helps me to see myself and help me to see the ways that I can overcome my personal failures. And I'd suggest the first thing to you is to realize that transformation comes with time. There's an illustration found in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul would talk about those who are now presenting themselves to Christ like a living sacrifice. I want you to notice verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The word transformed is from the original word metamorphe, from which we get our word metamorphosis. Like when you take a caterpillar and it becomes a butterfly. We have to realize that we are going through a transformation process. We're getting rid of that old man and we are trying to replace it with a new man. But somewhere along the line... We're going to stumble and fall and realize it takes some time. We have to realize we're not the only ones to have failed either. When you start opening your Bible and you look and see, am I the only one who's ever had any personal failure? In Luke 22, verse 32, speaking to Peter, Jesus said, But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you return to me, strengthen your brethren. When you've returned to me, when you've come back, yes, we need to realize that failure is there. But now what if I do fail? What if my past is full of stumblings and fallings? You know, the Apostle Paul reflected on his own life and recognized in that that he had failed many ways. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 and following, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I recognize that there are things in the past and I've got to leave them there in the past. Repent and go on. But now let me talk to you for a few moments about persistent temptations. I would dare say that if most of us on the day which we were baptized, the day that we became a Christian, that we believed in our mind that somehow we were from this point forward going to be immune from temptation. You may not have believed that, but I did. I thought that now it was going to be very easy that if the devil came to me, I could say boo and he'd run. That it's going to be easy. But you know the reality is. Is that's just simply not the case. 
The fact that you and I have temptations is not itself bad or wrong. In James chapter 1, he says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Why should I count it a joy? Because this is an opportunity for me to conquer over sin. Drop down to verse 13. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. You see, temptation is there. Even our Lord was tempted. But he didn't sin with that. The truth is that the devil looks for an opportunity He looked for an opportunity to tempt Jesus and he looks for an opportunity to tempt us in Luke chapter 4 verse 13. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now here's how the devil's going to come at you. He's going to come at you when you are your weakest, when you are your most vulnerable and in a way that you find it the most difficult to resist. The devil is going to look for an opportunity to come at you. And as you weaken, the devil is going to increase and increase those temptations. And you can see that as they were done in the life of Jesus. And one of the things that you will observe if you study Ezekiel chapter 16 is that the way that the devil came in among Jerusalem is the friends that Jerusalem had chosen. He said, you went and made yourself friends of the Egyptians. Then you went to the Assyrians, if you read on through the chapter. And he said, you became like your sisters, Samaria and Sodom. In other words, you surrounded yourself with wicked people. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. And Proverbs chapter 13 verse 20, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companions of fools will be destroyed. You see, the persistent temptations, sometimes we can place many more in our pathway because of who we chose to be our friends, to be our associates. Well, how does God expect us to be able to win the struggles with these persistent temptations? If they're coming my way and I'm, I'm facing them on a daily basis, how do I deal with that? First of all, to recognize God's power. Too often we're only looking at our abilities rather than God's abilities. In 2 Peter chapter 2, he's talked about the kind of problems that the child of God is going to face from within. That is from within the body and from among ourselves. And he says it like this, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and reserve the unjust for punishment for the day of judgment. You see, God knows how. God knows how to take my life 
and make it where I don't have to succumb to the temptations. And I have a reassurance of that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, it is explained how God is able to do that for me. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it or be able to endure it. You see, God knows my breaking point. He knows the temptation that is just too great to resist. And God says, I won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. The second thing that God does is God always makes a right way to deal with every temptation. There's a way of escape so that you and I can bear it. You see, that's the power of God in our lives. But number three is what I've termed phony Christians. And I would say most of us at some point in our lives have struggled with the fact that people that we thought were faithful Christians have failed themselves. We look round about us and people that we had somehow placed up on a pedestal, we realize they're sinners as well. That they make mistakes. They say things they ought not say. They do things they ought not do. And we become disillusioned by that. And we say, well, maybe it doesn't work to be a Christian. Let me, for instance, give you an example of two of the premier faithful people in the New Testament. If I were to ask you to name some real faithful people, many of us would say, well, Peter was faithful. Look at the way that God gave him such responsibility. But I would say if you were to pick out one person and say, tell me somebody who was such a positive, encouraging, faithful brother, Many of us would say Barnabas. And yet when I go to Galatians chapter 2 beginning with verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before certain came from James he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came he withdrew and separated himself fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. Even so that Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. You see, even Peter and Barnabas got involved in hypocrisy. A person began to say, well, you mean that there's none righteous? No, not one? Yeah, that's exactly what Romans 3, verses 9 and 10 says, There's none righteous, no, not one. That means that if you start looking around about you at every brother and every sister in Christ and you say, Well, I'm going to model my life after theirs because they don't make mistakes. Here's what you're going to find out is everyone does. 
And so it's easy to get disappointed and disillusioned and to think that, well, does it pay to be faithful? And then you get to thinking, well, everybody's doing it. This man over here, he sins, and this man over here, he sins, and it's like your teenage child comes to you and wants to do something that in your better judgment you say, no, and they say, but everybody's doing it. And you say, okay, I guess if everybody's doing it, it'll be okay. No, it's not okay. How can I overcome the disappointing behavior? When I see what I thought was a genuine Christian and recognize failure in their life, well, i got to remember that they, like me, are trying to go through a transforming process. Many times that brother or that sister over there that you saw that you had such great confidence in, you recognize they've got failures, but then you look at yourself and you know that you're striving, struggling. Maybe they're striving and struggling as well. Restore those who are overtaken. The people who have been consumed by a trespass. Galatians 6 and verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Look at that person. Realize that they have been overtaken by this. Help them, don't browbeat them. Do so in a spirit of gentleness. And then resolve that no man will be your pattern. There's only one true, genuine, faithful, never sinned person to walk the face of this earth. And that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who did no sin nor guile was found in his mouth. Let's talk very briefly about prosperity. And I know that many of us may look at this and say, well, this is not something that's a real temptation, but I'd suggest it is. And I'd suggest that if you go to Ezekiel chapter 16, you will see God say, I gave you gold, I gave you silver. In fact, he said, I even gave you fine flour with oil and honey. In other words, I gave you delicacies. Y'all may not realize it, but the fine flour and the the oil and the honey is the desserts. I gave you all these sweet things to eat, and I gave you all this gold, and I gave you all this beautiful clothing. God said, you begin to trust in your own beauty. And you begin to look at what you have and to say, hey, it's mine. Not realizing the one who gave it to you, it's possible that possessions can possess us rather than us possessing them. Let me carry to a couple of passages. In Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, Solomon says, Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is allotted for me lest I be full and deny you 
or say, and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Notice, be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? That's exactly what Jerusalem had become. In her wealth and in her prosperity, she had forgotten God. In Mark 10 and verse 24, Jesus observed, The disciples were astonished at his word, but Jesus answered and said to them, Children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? You put your faith, your confidence, your trust in the material things, and it's really hard to be faithful to God. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 13, There's a severe evil which I have seen under the sun, Riches kept for their owner to his hurt. In other words, you hold on to the possessions because that means everything to you. Men can be drawn into sin by riches. When Paul wrote 1 Timothy chapter 6, he's trying to explain, and I will tell you the context deals with those people who are preaching for profit who suppose that godliness is the means of gain. He says about them, those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare and to many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and has pierced themselves through with many sorrows. There are people who are out here trying to grasp the money, the power, the prestige that goes along with it, and they've been led away from the truth. Prosperity can do that to us. I carry back to Luke 8 and verse 14 where he says, Those who fell among the thorns, who those who when they have heard go out and are choked with the cares, riches, and pleasures of life. Here I am. I'm struggling to be a child of God. And there is a major temptation out here. And that is prosperity that deceives me. Well, how can I overcome the struggle with things? Well, first of all, I think we need to remember where they come from. Just like the young woman that grows up and becomes the bride of God is given all these beautiful things because she is loved by God, soon began to trust that they were hers. When you and I are prospered in this life, recognize God gave us these things. And that just as easily as they can come into our life, they can leave our lives. Job saw that in a very sad way. Realized there are some things much more valuable than things. It's a sad lesson that people sometimes have to learn. When they get old, they pursued wealth in their life and they have neglected their family, they've neglected their children, and they die lonely and alone and all their possessions around about them and they provide no satisfaction whatsoever. 
great example of that in the Bible is the rich man and Lazarus. And you look at all that he had. He fared sumptuously every day. He wore fine linen. He wore purple. He had the best of everything there was to enjoy in this life, but he did not have God. On the other hand, Lazarus had little to nothing, but he had God, and he was rich. We have to resolve that we're going to place our treasures in heaven and not here on earth. Perhaps the best passage in all Scripture to help us this is what Jesus said in that Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where there is neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Making sure that this does not become a major temptation for us. I could spend a lot more time than just these four things. Because Peter talks about things that war against the soul. That are out here and the devil would love for us to give up and to give in. He would love for us to do as Jerusalem was described in Ezekiel 16. But you know as you read in those first few verses and especially verse 6. God said live. And you get to the end of the chapter and God still wants Jerusalem to live. You look at us and our sin and we're ugly. And God wants us to live and desires for us to live. And each of us struggles against sin in our own lives. But now when it comes to dealing with it for us, God doesn't want us to ignore it. God does not want us to deny it. God wants us to deal with it. Proverbs 28, 13. He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. What was God looking for out of Jerusalem? Jerusalem, acknowledge your sin. Come back to me. And if you're a Christian this morning, and you look at your life and you say, I know there's sin there, then don't nurse it. Don't ignore it. Come forward and confess that and let's pray with you. Let God restore you to faithfulness. And if you're not yet a Christian, it's time to be born into the family of God by being baptized for the remission of your sins. If you need to respond, would you come as we stand together and sing?